This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hello, you are listening to RRR and welcome to another episode of Plato's Cave, a film criticism show and podcast. I'm Stuart Richards and with me tonight are my glorious co-hosts, Emma Westwood, Sally Christie and Cerise Howard. Hello, hello. Hello, hello, hello. Hi, hi, hi. Just uh, felt like doing a whoop. That kind of night (laughs) On tonight's show we will look at Fatih Akin's In the Fade Where Diane Kruger plays a widow and a mother Mourning over the murder of her husband and child At the hands of neo-Nazis We will also look at the Ai Weiwei helmed documentary On the global refugee crisis Human Flow But first, Alex Garland's Annihilation Starring Natalie Portman Garland has an impressive track record, penning the scripts for numerous memorable sci-fi films, including 28 Days Later, Sunshine and Never Let Me Go. In 2015, he made his directorial debut with artificial intelligence thriller Ex Machina, starring Oscar Isaac and Alicia Vikander, which received considerable critical acclaim. Based on the science fiction book of the same name by Jeff Vandermeer, Annihilation was initially released in North America theatrically by Paramount Pictures on February the 23rd. Due to poor test screenings, however, Paramount became concerned that the film was too intellectual and too complicated and demanded changes to make it appeal to a wider audience, including making Portman's character more sympathetic and changing the ending. Producer Scott Rudin sided with Garland and refused to make any amendments to the film. Following this clash, the film received an international distribution through streaming giant Netflix. Speaking on uh, his disappointment with this Netflix deal uh, to the the site Collider, uh, Alex Garland states, We made the film for cinema. I've got no problem with the small screen at all. The best genre piece I've seen in a long time was The Handmaid's Tale, so I think there's incredible potential with that context. But if you're doing that, you make it for that medium and you think of it in those terms. Look, it is what it is. The film is getting a theatrical release in the States, which I'm really pleased about. One of the big pluses of Netflix is that it goes out to a lot of people and you don't have that strange opening weekend thing where you're wondering if anyone is going to turn up. And then if they don't, it vanishes from cinema screens in two weeks. So it got pluses and minuses. But from my point of view and the collective of the people who made it, it was made to be seen on a big screen. The film is a post-apocalyptic adventure that sees Portman as Lena, a biologist, looking for answers as to what happened to her ailing husband, played by Oscar Isaac, as she joins an expedition into a territory isolated from civilization that has been overrun with an atmosphere known as the Shimmer, which seems to um, create mysterious and dangerous occurrences. The film is told through flashbacks as she is interrogated in quarantine. Joining her on this expedition is an impressive cast, with Jennifer Jason Lee as a leader with nothing to lose, Gina Rodriguez as a tough-as-nails paramedic, Tessa Thompson as a timid physicist, and Tufa Novotny, a geologist grieving for her deceased child. The film's visuals are impressive, with several scenes being particularly jaw-dropping. The ending is definitely a head-scratcher, though, which I imagine would leave many needing more questions answered. So what are everyone else's thoughts? Who's going to jump in first? Sally? 
Um, I do think that it is a huge disappointment that we're not going to see this on the big screen because it was visually spectacular. Um, I really liked this a whole lot more than I actually thought that I would. Uh, I liked its kind of comment on humans and their need to kind of self-destruct and it looked at it in lots of different ways from, you know, cancer to, you know, just abuse, uh, you know, Different, different kinds of ways that we self-destruct as people. Um, the, oh, the bit that I want to talk about is in the end, so I can't, but it was particularly gorgeous. And also I think that the CGI in this film, it worked for me, which normally CGI doesn't, but I think that it, it worked really well with it. It added to it. It didn't kind of take away from anything for me, um, particularly in the scenes with the animals, which normally CGI animals give me the shits in movies. <laughs> they, they pulled it off really nicely. Those deer are beautiful. I know. The shots I love of the deer. Them. Yeah, well, it did, it, it did really play on beauty, though. Mm. Um, there was a lot of uh, beautiful colours in the shimmer. When they went into the shimmer, this idea of this world that um, no one seems to emerge from, that there was the sort of rainbow aspect to it, which you know, without giving away the plot, does actually buy into the plot in some way. It's kind of actually um, warranted to look that way. And um, I'm with Sally. I think it is a shame that it hasn't got a cinema release. This this is a type of film that feels like it should be... Every film should show in a cinema. But still, this this film definitely is a cinema experience. Um for for me, with compared to Ex Machina, which is Alex Garland's debut, as Stuart has said, um, it doesn't work in the same way for me. I, this was really super hyped on a Netflix. People love it, and there's a lot of talk around it. I felt that it, it felt its storyline was much more important than it really was, and it sort of languished with it. And the whole end that I think that you want to talk about, I really kind of went on the nod. I was over it I by really then. I liked it. No, <laughs> I normally I like, hate Whoa. that kind of stuff. So, yeah, whereas Ma- Ex Machina just felt much more pointed in its focus and I thought, therefore, was a, a far more dynamic film. I did like the, the the female dynamic of this, that there were all women that went in and it wasn't made a big deal of it being all women. It was just they were the next group that went in. Though we might like to make a big deal of it and presume, or at least to speculate, that that's perhaps one of the key reasons that Paramount thought this was not a marketable property, that uh, the principles yeah, that's really in that's the film shame. were women and also that. women of colour. And I mean, I'd be very curious to know what these these are uh, test screenings, um, what what uh, findings they produced, what what it was that made Paramount drop such a hot property with such big stars, many of whom are in many of the major sci-fi franchises of the moment, the mm. Star Wars films, uh, the cast here, Os- Oscar Isaacs in the Star Wars films, Tessa Thompson. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this it's, they're major stars. Um, this is a, a director with a certain name. There are beautiful visuals to to put on the big screen for trailers everywhere in cinemas. You'd think this is a cinema film and they still dropped it. They panicked and sold it to Netflix. I find that bizarre and, and disappointing. Is is there something of the uh, the fallout from Ghostbusters? Did that scare them off? And that was a manufactured um, hullabaloo as well. Yes, a whole exactly. lot of pathetic. Pathetic fanboys are spamming Rotten Tomatoes and um, 
somehow uh, cajoling its algorithms to give it a lower rating than it really uh, had earned through critical appraisal. Even though I actually wasn't a huge fan of Ghostbusters, the remake, but nonetheless, I, I sense there's something of that in the mix and I think it's... See, Very yeah, disappointing. And that's interesting because you, I've, watching it, I only got to, I got halfway through and I went, oh, God, they're all women. <laughs> I actually didn't think of it. It was just such a natural progression, you know. It just worked perfectly. I, I noticed it straight away. Did you? Yep. <laughs> straight away that it was all women and that they, I do kind of feel that they made a deal of it when they, were asking Natalie Portman's character, Lena, to go over and be their friend um, and that they were all going to go in and there were going to be five women. I, I do, for me, I felt that it was made a big deal that they were all women and that they were, they were going in together. Mm, yeah, maybe I didn't see it just because of the through line from the start with Natalie Portman. She was so sort of set up as the capable and, you know, focused person going in there. But, you know, I, I hoped for more... The CGI, look, I, di- I didn't mind the CGI. It didn't blow my mind. I did like um, one particular bear. You love the bears? I love the bears, yes. I was talking about bears on the weekend to people, just in case you're wondering. Don't but, we all? Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, Stuart. <laughs> I was talking about different bears. But, yes, um, the the. That that was particularly interesting. What they did with that as a as a character—that's incredible. That scene you're talking about, yeah. without giving anything away, that I think is incredible. What they're doing there, and I think that scene I think will live on as being really iconic. Yeah, that is a, it did make me think of one very particular scene in one very particular Lars von Trier film, mm. and I won't say which because it gives away Give what was away. kind of magical yeah. about that mm. moment yeah. in this film as well. But it definitely had me thinking back to this Mm. other moment. And there's something really abject about a few of these moments. I mean, there's one bit where they find the camera footage of the previous team Mm. that were there and they open his stomach and... Uh, there's there's something really creepy about this film that gave me the heebie-jeebies a few times. Did you? How did you feel about because it really hinges on the relationship between Natalie Portman and Oscar Isaac? How did you? Did you feel? Did that resonate with you? Well, I I mean, there's a really yeah. um, I felt there was something really interesting about mental health and depression about Oscar Isaac's character, where he comes back from war basically, and he's. Um, he's really disturbed and he's really broken and it's really hard for them to kind of mend this connection that they have. Yeah. Um, and he, he's come back from war and he's not the same person. I think there's something really interesting about there's this There's a film. nice metaphor there because there's mm. more to it than that, of course, as we as teased out by the yeah. film. But there's something a little trite about the, the idea of... Um, this film is under-nuanced in, the, in how it positions all of these women as being damaged. They yes. all just sort of <laughs> mm, happily volunteer. One of them, yeah, this inane conversation yeah. between Natalie Portman's character and one of the other women about what's the matter with each of them such that they agreed to go on such an expedition as and this. And they're all damaged, yeah. And, and they're all damaged in individual ways that mm. uh, it, it's just not explored or um, it's, just, <laughs> it's just so superficial. Yeah. But I don't mind it because this is a genre film and I don't mind having these caricatures in this team. Um, I, think, all, yeah. I think they felt like they had to have that as the excuse for them going in there. But mm. I think you, I think just pure human curiosity. And if someone's a scientist, then they're they're probably willing to to do that anyway. Um, so they probably felt like they needed to justify it more than 
then uh, they actually, you know... I felt that with the Jennifer yeah. Jason Lee character. I thought, of course she's going to want to go in there. Of course, and see. Yes. She doesn't need an extra reason to do exactly. that. And it exactly. was awesome to see her on the screen again because I love her and she's excellent. <laughs> 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 Did you see Good Time last year? I haven't. Oh, I well, know. She was underused in that as well. But, um, we don't she was. see she's, much of her. She, like, she's still un- good. She, yeah, she needs to have bigger roles. She's so good. But um, the... With Natalie Portman's character, Lena, and her husband, her kind of side story as to why she goes in there because she feels that she owes him something I thought was um, a big downfall of the film. And I was talking to someone about it today who said that they've read the novel of it and Mm. that actually isn't in there. That's Ah. not part of the novel at all. That doesn't happen. So Yeah, I just think, especially after seeing a completely different film, but seeing something like uh, Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool and how they set up that rapport so instantly. And I felt this film, this film felt itself that that dynamic of that relationship yes. was so, so important mm. um, and it didn't quite pull it off. I, Oscar Isaac is absolutely wonderful and he was fantastic in Ex Machina and he dances in it. Oh, he's Just fantastic. So that, wonderful. Yeah, that routine in Ex Machina is fabulous. <laughs> it's worthwhile seeing just for that. Um, but this one, I, the idea that it was too complicated for people Really, I find that gobsmacking. Yeah, I find that very peculiar. There was one moment when they're talking about the science of the shimmer and what's happening where they have that conversation and they use a few terms that I had to stop and Google (laughs) what they meant. So they don't dumb down the science of it. No, Um, though it's well telegraphed, opening with uh, Natalie Portman's uh, character delivering a lecture to students about cell division and how living is in fact dying, and I mean it's all uh, there are nice through lines, which is mm. it's nice to have yeah. through lines through a film conceptually, but it's 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 not some sort of super smart film that really requires a great deal of yeah. pondering it did for after. Me. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not good at science. <laughs> I, I, get, I get lost in sci-fi too, but <laughs> it seemed quite obvious to me. So that's why I think I found that that there there is the a sequence without giving it away, there is a sequence at the end that is almost a silent film within the actual film and um that just felt like it was hammering home the point over and over again for me and I'm just like snore, let's get on. <laughs> you're you're like what? Yeah. <laughs> snore, snore, <laughs> meh, shopping yeah. list, you know, yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I do want to mention um, in terms of performances is Tessa Thompson and Gina Rodriguez, where I think it's almost like their characters in this have flipped their kind of personas they yes. usually play because Gina Rodriguez is this usually this really sweet character where Tessa Thompson is usually this really tough-as-nails character and they've completely done a 180 yeah. in this one, which I love. Yeah, um, yeah. And just before we move on, um, I want to give a shout-out to my brother, Brendan, who's listening. Um, and Hey, Brendan. Hi, Brendan. Hi, Brendan. <laughs> um, and we were texting today and he's like, what do you think of that film, Annihilation? I'm going to watch it on my phone on the train home. No, I was like, no, no. No. Don't do it, Brendan. No, no, don't do it. Actually, not on the phone. Not least for the sound design as well because it is wonderful. It would have been greater in a a 5.1 Dolby setup in a cinema, but um, even if, like me, you're encumbered with merely a a, a nice stereo setup, Mm. um, yeah, it would have been wonderful. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia.
now we turn to the work of Turkish-German filmmaker Fatih Akin and his film In the Fade, which received the Golden Globe for Best Foreign Language Film this year. Akin would be known to many for his previously critically acclaimed films, including The Edge of Heaven, Head On, The Cut and Soul Kitchen. Here, Diane Kruger delivers an intensely moving performance as Katja Sekerci, for which he rightly received the Best Actress Award at the 2017 Cannes Film Festival. Katja is married to Nuri, played by Newman Akar, a Kurdish man who a few years earlier has um, had been released from prison for drug trafficking. Now that they have a five-year-old son, Rocco, Nuri has quit his life of crime and runs his own business as a translator and tax consultant. One day, like any other, Katja leaves the two at the office to spend time with her heavily pregnant friend, Birgit, played by Samia Chankran. Upon returning to the office, she discovers that her husband and son have been murdered in an explosion that has decimated the office. What follows is a film divided into three parts, respectively called The Family, Justice and The Sea, each with its own aesthetic, uh, filmed by director of photography Rainer Klausmann. In The Family, Klausman captures Kutcher's grief with a handheld Ari Alexa in the Super 16 mode to give a rough look. The courtroom scenes in the second chapter, Justice, were shot with a static, sharp anamorphic lens, leaving it cold. For the final chapter in The Sea, uh, set in Greece, a soft look was achieved with an old vintage lens. Given that the film is inspired by real hate crime murders committed by neo-Nazis in Hamburg, the film is unnerving and deeply effective. Kutcher's grief and anger is palpable. The ending may divide some viewers, but when the final shot of the inverted sea comes onto screen, I felt as if I had the wind knocked out of me. What did everyone else think? Gee, I'm, I think you wore your heart on your sleeve with that intro there, Stuart. Yes. I think we know how you felt. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I felt somewhat the same, I have to admit. I think this is probably um, up. I've, I've been making notes already this year. I've decided out of um, experience to keep notes of best films of the year and this is definitely one that sits up there for me. I wasn't, I wasn't sure what to expect, but Diane Kruger's performance is definitely worthy of many awards not just one um it's i think that well we're going to be talking about human flow shortly but it's interesting because human flow is a very pointed film in um putting forward a message and i feel that this film is while it's not about refugees it's about still migrant issues is probably more effective in communicating that message because it's not just communicating, to, um, preaching to the converted, basically. Uh, it's a film that could possibly change people's minds and it doesn't present the migrant experience as, you know, oh, these poor little migrants or whatever. It presents him as um, and, and them as a family, as a, you know, a, a, an actual family. They're flawed, you know, they've made mistakes, had some problems with the law, whatever, you know. They're not... Um, they're not squeaky clean, yet you do have this incredible sympathy for what she goes through. And her feelings of grief, I felt, were just incredibly raw without without bringing you down and sinking you into a well. There was enough of the ebbs and flows to, um, to give the colour and shade that gave the impact to, to what she was going through. And it just rang really true, I felt. 
Yeah, I'm mm. with you on this, Emma. I mm. absolutely loved it. I went into it knowing absolutely nothing about it. And I definitely think that it would be the best film that I've seen about terrorism, I'd say, since Chris Morris did Four Lions. Um, and that one, was a while ago that now. It's a long time yes. ago. Jeez, that's about a good movie. 2006, yeah. I think. Yeah. 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 So good. So good. point. Good. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, I'm also a real sucker for films that have great courtroom scenes, and this did. I've, what I found really interesting is that Fatih Akin went to what Stuart was mentioning before with the real um, events that this film was perhaps inspired by, that he went and sat in on a lot of the trial for that for the NSU, which was the National Socialist Underground, who were um, a bunch of neo-Nazis in Germany. They killed 10 people. Um, Nine of them were immigrants and one was a German police officer. So while they were filming that, yeah, they went in and they watched this trial and kind of gained inspiration from that. And I also think that it's worth noting that um, Josh Holmes from Queens of the Stone Age did the soundtrack. Yes, exactly. (laughs) good job. Yeah, 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 good point. Also, um... I, I really like the fact that Diane Kruger's character had tattoos. But like, she didn't I, she say when she, she was really going for an, another tattoo at one point and I love the fact yeah. that she actually went to yeah. a Turkish bath as well, even though... I know. And yes. I think we should point out that her, cam- her character is mm. German through and through, German-born, mm. German national, not a migrant, so married to um, a Turkish immigrant and therefore has, um, you know, a child who is both... Turkish and German. Um, uh, you can see that in the that there's a clash there between both sets of parents. Oh yes, as well. mm. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's that's very well presented. But that she goes to a Turkish bath and she talks about a tattoo that she's getting, and she says that Nuri doesn't doesn't like tattoos. Yeah. And even though he is the character who has been in jail and the idea of being, you know, well, he'd be the one that's complicit with tattoos, she was like, oh, this is the last one I can get. And that's kind of the first thing you see about her, I think when you first see her on film, it's one of the first things that you notice, I think, is the fact that she has tattoos. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this, this film looks for a while like it's going to become some sort of uh, real vigilante flick, uh, only some sort of very 21st century, dare I even say woke vigilante flick. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's really, but it's engaging with all these complexities um, which uh, often lose any degree of nuance in the media here. So any time when, let's say, especially in the United States, when there's what they call a homegrown act of terrorism, <laughs> they are... It, it, don't actually even tend to even use that. I don't know what that accent was either, but they um, generally... <laughs> I liked it. Generally, they wish to, to, to villainise anyone who is other. And here, the law and, and the protagonist and everything there, everything within this film is grappling with how does a, a culture uh, take on when, uh, when one of their own is the likely um, uh, perpetrator of hate crimes. And, of course, Germany with its extremely um, complex but uh, well-remembered 20th century genocidal um, business, uh, it's, it's very much in the makeup of Germans these days to acknowledge what they did in the 20th century, acknowledge the Holocaust. But I sense just they, like everywhere else where the people are predominantly white, still have trouble... Um, thinking through who might be the likeliest party to be the guilty party in a hate crime when, in this case, it's the other who are the victims. Here, 
you know, Diana Kruger is having to battle um, a judiciary uh, who you sense, and, and even her own friends, families, people, people wish to think that probably these people had it coming somehow or, mm. or their own people took them out because surely Germans wouldn't be doing that sort of thing anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think this film grapples with that, that sort of conundrum really intelligently and leaves us in great suspense figuring out how this film is going to play out in the courtroom dramas and in this third act in uh, sunny seaside Greece. Um, it's a, it's a clever film and it, it really reels us along. I think it's, the reason it's so affecting is because we, we, we don't dare double uh, bluff it, guess it, you know, try to second guess it. It's, it's a slippery little film and I think it's uh, exceedingly well done. It's, it's quite cheeky in the way it's structured because it, um, it does follow a, a, a traditional narrative structure still and it feels very um, sa- satisfying as a na- narrative structure, yet it's, it turns our expectations upside down. Even calling the the middle act justice, that would usually be the third act. And that in itself is, a, is once you see the film, uh, you'll see what I mean, that is a little cheeky play, you know, mm. play with what we're expecting. He's doing... Uh cheeky Hitchcock things with it because I know that that's what he wanted with the soundtrack to make it sound like a Hitchcock film so that it did add that sort of element to suspense um, to In the Fade rather than just having it as a straight-up drama. Mm. That find the final sequence, there's a few moments um, at the sea in the third act where I was so gripped on the mm. edge of my seat and that role of vigilante justice I think is really interesting because you're so connected with Diane Kruger's Kruger's character where you kind of want her to commit violence and you want her to play out this anger, but you know that that won't actually achieve anything. Yeah, yeah. And then you think, what? well, what's after that? Yeah, what's Mm. next? Yeah, what's next? And, Mm. uh, yeah, the the actual, um, the accused in the in the film, it was interesting how little we got to really know about them. We only saw them through her eyes, which was obviously on purpose. We weren't meant to have any form of sympathy with her. It was more, as um, Cerise was saying, this idea of, um, the guilty and innocent being played out with the one party, which was that one family. So that whole dynamic played out with Diane Kruger and her husband and her child. And I think there's quite a lot at stake with that play with uh, audience presumption. We're used to certain genre tropes. We're used to thinking this or that character might be the ones that we're expected to pin blame on and or to sympathise with, as the case might be. And there's just more at stake in this um, in this current day with a film like this, where the the various characters in this sort of drama um, uh, are of different ethnicities, and it's. Um, I, I mean, we, we do expect this sort of drama from Fatih Akin, I believe. I mean, I, I don't know if, if you've seen many of his other films. No, I haven't, and now I want to see all of them. Head because on, because this great. is amazing. Yeah. yeah, I love Head On. I haven't even seen Head On, yeah. so. Yeah, this is a revelation for me, gripped from start to finish, basically. And those courtroom scenes are shot so incredibly well. Mm, I mean, mm. the use of foreground and background is incredible because there are so many moments when Diane Kruger's character is just kind of sitting stewing in the background and she's this small little figure and she just she's so gripping and you're sort of drawn to her even though she's so far away from the camera. 
Didn't they? I think they shot the entire film in order as well. Wow. Yep. And um, Diane really, Kruger, yeah, that's interesting. Diane Kruger was saying that that was something that was extremely helpful for her character development because she got to go through these actual stages with her character. But yeah, they shot the entire film in order. Wow, amazing. Because I did like the opening as well, the way that that was basically the the um, the home movie or the video, the, the video of the wedding, their wedding and that opening in the jail and he actually talks to the camera at that stage and says the moment of truth before he walks in to meet her. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. So for the final film tonight, we are taking a look at Ai Weiwei's Human Flow. The documentary explores the harsh reality for over 65 million people around the world who are forced to leave their homes to escape famine, climate change and war. This is the greatest human displacement since World War II. Internationally renowned artist Ai Weiwei offers an unflinching, powerful and yet poetic visual take on this human flow, showing us the staggering scale of the refugee crisis and its profoundly personal human impact. He jumps freely from country to country, visiting Jordan, Bangladesh, the island of Lesbos off Greece, the Mediterranean Sea off just off southern Italy and the US-Mexico border, offering us small vignettes of brief moments in the lives of refugees. News headlines scroll across the screen as if it's a news program and various quotes from poets and politicians appear on the screen often working poetically with the visuals one in particular that stood out to me was from uh, president kennedy saying every american whoever lived with the exception of one group was either an immigrant himself or a descendant of immigrants so this is especially apt for australians at the moment uh, given our horrendous treatment of asylum seekers while he is a key figure in the film ai Weiwei never makes uh, his own story the focus this is more of an epic portrait of humanity. We don't get any distinctiveness with the refugees that are interviewed or featured. Rather, it is the similarity of their experiences that shines through. From, uh, from joy found in mundane moments such as petting a cat or getting a haircut, of children being bored in literal captivity or relief at being rescued by nameless forces in uniform. In human flow, migration is a human right that is being denied to many. Uh, what did others think? of the documentary. Cerise? Oh. Uh, well, I watched this late last night. It's not That's easy. That's not a good time. Not easy, <laughs> really not an easy film to wind a weekend down with. No. I uh, did the same. Not late, but I did the same last night. Yeah. And there's a lot that's admirable in the film and, of course, deeply troubling. How could it be anything but? Though so I was surprised at how it's, it sounds almost crass to say this, but how aesthetically pleasing much of the film is which I actually find kind of troubling. Aestheticising this sort of human experience is, is a little problematic, perhaps. I actually found his own presence in the film a little problematic. I actually simply don't know why he keeps appearing in the film. Yeah, I was going to... That's also I was wanting to ask and mm. get people's opinions. Yeah, he, he's yeah. just there in shot sometimes. Yeah. And yeah. sometimes you see, yes, he's shooting some footage and that sort of makes sense because then it will sometimes cut to the footage he's actually shooting as he mm. perhaps chats with somebody in a vehicle or... Uh, with a kid who's got a camera or just these little exchanges. But a lot of the other time, he's just simply there. And I don't or really com- know why. Or comforting someone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's I thought, okay. But I, yeah. I, I mean, I get it that, yes, he's made a film. But I, I don't know that I actually need to see him in it because it just doesn't seem to actually serve mm. a great 
purpose. Sometimes I think it kind of worked. Like I thought he wasn't doing it in a Nick Broomfield kind of way where he was really taking over. A Mike Moore kind yeah. of way. Yeah. No, yeah. no, it was certainly understated, but also just why? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that there's um, there was very much about this film, even in watching the credits, said it was an Ai Weiwei film, you know, <laughs> so it was a bit of the cult of Ai Weiwei, although he seems like a very gentle, lovely man and he, he does have a a nice screen presence. But, yes, I understand. I, I, I'm kind of in two minds about it. I'm not entirely sure whether it was warranted or not. I did like the idea of showing him just filming on either his camera or his, literally on his phone um, and the idea of bringing that in so he could see, because there were a number of different cameras going at different times, number of different types of cameras, especially startling is those amazing drone shots where they... They are incredible. They are incredible. Yeah, shots, I think that are. we're still at a stage where drone shots are really amazing. <laughs> <laughs> we'll probably get sick of them at some stage, but I, I just think of what, you know, Ivan Sen did with Goldstone and even Mystery Road, these amazing drone shots and these had him sort of zooming right down from a really high level um, right into a shot where you're looking at people like fleas and then you come in to actually see characteristics and that they're they're actual people. Um, Also, it was no doubt that gives... There were a lot of shots that were to give the immensity of these camps and I think that was important, lots of tracking shots right over the top of them and interesting to see how in different countries how while it was same, same but different, you know, mm. just the even the landscapes and the the climate and how the, the different climates worked. Um, for me, even though it was very powerful, I didn't feel like I was seeing something I hadn't seen, strangely. I I have read a little bit. I don't think I'm the most, um, you know, knowledgeable person about the refugee crisis, but I had sort of, I think, pieced mental pictures, seen things and pieced mental pictures together from everything I've seen. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm just very empathetic. I already saw it. (laughs) But um, uh, what did surprise me uh, was the length of refugee status, that there were people who had... I think, Mm. died and um, birthed other children who had just lived as refugees and how it's so ongoing because you keep on thinking, oh, people go somewhere, they they might have to jump through, you know, a certain amount of hoops and then then they're... um, then they're a national of a new country. But that wasn't the case, which was particularly what they were um, emphasising with the Afghanis that were sent back from Pakistan, Pakistan after about 30, 40 yeah, years so or children something like born that. in Pakistan who have never been to Afghanistan and are being expelled back to Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What I thought, especially in watching In the Fade and talking about In the Fade alongside this is... Um, why Germany is the focus, I, I, there must be a reason and I don't know, I haven't looked it up on Google, but this, um, and I already knew that Germany was a focus for everyone. Everyone seems to want to get to Germany, but I'm not entirely sure why. Well, I don't Angela know Angela Merkel anyone... had made it clear that they were going to be welcoming. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so they're the one place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Although I was very touched and I have seen this before, I think it was actually on Foreign Correspondent, of the, the way that particularly in Italy they, they treat the, the refugees coming in. Like there was genuine warmth. Mm. They had 
And at one stage, though, it was quite a remarkable image to see them all in that um, shiny um, hypothermal blankets, you know, that's made out of like a shiny tinsel almost. And they all look like a big Christmas tree sitting on the It's it's also like an act of hugging as they're putting it on. Yeah, and they were really, you know, being Mm. really respectful. And I thought, oh, gee, look at that compared to us. Those moments reminded me of the film Fire at Sea, if anyone saw that. Which Mm. won the best film at the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival last year. Um, And I think perhaps that film touched on that issue a little, I think, more nuanced or better perhaps. Um, Yeah. I don't know. This movie really devastated me. Yeah, yeah, I was, uh, you know... Sorry, I'm a hard bitch. That's what he's saying. I know. I just sat there and cried the whole time. Did you really? Okay. I think it's very... I think it's... The thing that get with me, uh, with and this can happen with art. I think this is what I was pointing out with in the fade that this is so this is so beautiful. Like you said, Cerise, it's and kind that of is, strange. It makes it really conflicting. I totally agree. Yeah, that there yeah. are these shots that are just glorious, and you're going, well, God, I shouldn't be sitting here finding something beautiful in this. Obviously. Shitty situation, grief. yeah. But um, but also this idea of preaching to the converted. Yeah. I don't see how this is a documentary that goes for almost two and a half hours. Yeah. I cannot see anyone who who is not sympathetic with the refugee it, yeah. situation going and seeing that film, uh, unless you know. perhaps school groups are ushered there on mass and made to. Or, yeah. yeah, it becomes it lands on a curriculum somewhere. We could hope, um, but. Well, for me, the, the standout moment in this film actually didn't involve humans, but put humans, uh, the way we are treating one another, into a really interesting light. And that's this extraordinary scene involving a tiger. Oh, yeah, I, I was going to say the same thing. It's, it's, such, an, it's such an interesting moment. It is. That. And, and uh, that such great pains are gone to look after this big cat, this no. beautiful creature. Um, but still, it's, it's, it's supposed to be lesser than us somehow. We're supposed to be looking after one another first and foremost, you would think, on this planet, uh, if we are to have any hope of looking after the rest of the planet, which we're doing such a terrible job of doing, (laughs) by and large. But it's just really interesting to see all these people banding together and different nations actually cooperating just in order to send a tiger to to safety somewhere. And yet the way human beings are looking after other human beings who are just trying to find safe haven, safe harbour, it's... That, that for me was the moment where there was actually some poetry. There was actually mm. something, mm. Um, I mean, there's some some visually poetic images, but perhaps for me actually too beautiful. But that was a nice moment that could actually have come out of a, let's say, um, an Eastern European comedy by way yeah. of telling, uh, make, making a, a sophisticated gag, which actually says a lot about something that using more banal means like yeah. just showing human beings being dreadful to one another, it doesn't quite accomplish the same thing. Yeah. Mm. Amongst all the um, the amazing wide, broad shots as well, there were a few some a few nicely detailed things as well. Uh, like the there was one where they had um, a pow- power board or a, a sort of series of power boards with all their mobile phones <laughs> um, plugged into it, getting their mobile phone charged. And then there was another group of women who were really, really forthright, quite ballsy women who were in the Gaza Strip and they were talking about their situation. Although they were very, 
you know, they were good humoured about it. You could see how they're just like, well, this is our life. We have to get on with this. And they were like, today we're smiling. Yeah, 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 this Mm. is what we do. But then one of them had an Andy Warhol book on her knee, which I thought was quite... I noticed that. Yes. (laughs) And I found it really intriguing. And I, I, you know, no doubt I wanted him to ask her about it, but that was great that he didn't ask her about it as well because it just left me with this other story that I don't know anything about but I can talk to you guys about on air. <laughs> there were see but he did he did put some nice pieces of humour in there like that one particular part with the tiger at the start of that scene and also the woman and her pet cat and her oh, showing no. photographs of her cat dressed up which I thought was nice to kind of you know yeah, yeah. ease it up a bit. Exactly. So uh, Ai Weiwei's Human Flow is currently screening in limited release now. Uh, You've been listening to Emma Westwood, Sally Christie and Cerise Howard. I've been Stuart Richards. Thank you to the incredible Faith Everard who edits our podcast uh, version of the show. Thank you to Carl Chapman on the decks tonight. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.